It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Like Christian Benteke sent in a loan on goal, we have come to disappoint you. Three teams, three points separating them at the Premier League Summit. But what of Spurs? Four points back, Mauricio Pochettino's team might be ready for a title run. And at the bottom of the table, three teams are once again being left behind as Newcastle slide means the same morbid trio are entrenched in the drop. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Since we last met, a full slate of Premier League games has come and gone, and we have a new leader at the top of the table. Thanks to Leicester City and Manchester City playing out a scoreless draw Tuesday at the King Power Stadium, Arsenal's superior goal difference leaves them ahead of the Foxes, with Man City's 36 points, leaving the two-time champs three back. To talk about that match, as well as everything else that's happened in the Premier League's 19th round, I welcome Lawrence McKenna. Lawrence, where have you been? We obviously missed you so much on Sunday. Uh, family time of year. That's what I love. And then football. Um, so a good mix. Mm. You know, two, around. two things I admittedly don't care about. Makes it difficult to get through this podcast sometimes. But I'm glad that you have your priorities straight and me and Nipun don't seem to. Kartik certainly has his priorities straight. Been with family for the last couple of weeks. He's going to be back on the show on Sunday. The three of us back together again, Lawrence. Uh, and when we get together... This 19th round of the season, this midpoint of the Premier League campaign is going to be so far in the distance. Why don't you and I take a couple of moments now to try to remember what was, um, I, I guess nothing much stands out to me about this last round of matches, Lawrence. Really? Well, the most prominent matches on this, uh, on this match day, Manchester United hosting Chelsea, Leicester hosting Manchester City, two very different nil-nils, but ultimately they were nil-nils. Uh, yeah, but I mean, is that is that down to lack of attacking quality? I mean, in the United game, it was certainly uh, about the goalkeeping quality. True. Well, um, also, those two teams had a great knack for finding empty spaces on the pitch with their passes. Not not always the best thing. Sometimes that's the plan, you know, put the ball into space, let people run onto it. For these two teams, it's more put the ball into space so I don't have to have it anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, although I was reading a little bit about what the way that Van Gaal wants his team to play. And I mean, if you read the um, the kind of academic theory behind what he's trying to do, mm-hmm. they do say one of the real problems is that the players almost chicken out of playing it sometimes because either they feel too restrained or they don't feel competent enough to be able to play the positions, those kind of things. So they do end up giving the ball away. They don't end up feeling that sort of sense of freedom that maybe other managers have given them. Do you want to talk um, about that for a little bit? Because I think some people might not be familiar with the kind of the spatial theory behind Van Hall's uh, Van Hall's approach. Well, I was trying to work out whether 
whether it's truly rigid or whether certain players within I mean you, you can kind of go on a variation of it really um, mm. and I I mean I'm, I'm not as complex as other people go but I feel like a lot of players in that side seem quite structured they've definitely got areas uh, they're, they're definitely given areas that are supposed to fill in a lot of people have gone crazy recently about this whole Pep Guardiola you know dividing up the pitch in certain ways mm-hmm. um, sort of down the middle and uh, not allowing players to pass over certain areas and then if you look a little bit deeper into it and then you look at the structure that Mangal wants his team to play in and if you, you're in a certain area, then you do certain things. So, you know, if you're in a certain area, you pass it to another certain area or you work it forward or if someone's on the overlap from you, then they've got very specific instructions. And I, I mean, one of the main problems that seems to come up with that is that apparently players, you know, can either feel limited by it or sort of scared to play it because they've never played in that way before. Hmm. Um, and I guess that the, the problem for me is... Uh, I, are you supposed to find something that suits your players or are the players supposed to be more adaptable to be able to suit whatever it is that you want them to do? Uh, that's the great Manchester United debate right now. It, it really is an interesting topic. I would suggest people who are interested in Van Hall and Guardiola and kind of the connection between the two, and as well as people who just love drawing lines on soccer pitches, uh, should look into that a little bit more because it does at least hint at some of the things that people talk about when they talk about a lack of ma- imagination with Manchester United, a rigidity, a lack of creativity. And the debate seems to be whether Van Hall is insisting on that as a function of his philosophy or the players are not adapting to things as well as uh, as somebody like Van Hall probably right now would like. Uh, not- you sort of see some players kind of do and some players seem to do okay. I mean, if you can take instruction, then you seem to be okay in Van Gaal's um, system. I, yeah, and I, I think from my position, it's very difficult to tell because I see somebody like Ander Herrera come in and inject so much life into that team. And then I kind of think to myself, you know, he's probably running out of the zones that Louis van Gaal would ideally want him to stay in. And then you see other players, like Wayne Rooney is the obvious example, but you can go throughout the squad on most match days and, and think that they're, they're kind of tied to a conveyor belt and just going back and forth within the areas that were outlined on the, on the iPad before the game. I guess so. Um, I, I guess it's, is it also uh, transitioning away from, again, another uh, form of hierarchy towards another at Manchester United, people struggling to um, justify that, I guess. People still in their minds trying to work out where they go with this club and you know whether Manchester United is the same institution if it doesn't have the same people at the top. Yeah, probably. I think with Manchester United, it seems like from the very top, or uh, let's say from Ed Woodward's perch as the executive vice president, all the way down to the last man in the squad, it seems like a whole organization that's defined by a lack of confidence. And so maybe that leads to the symptoms that we've just been talking about over the last couple of minutes. Regardless, that nil-nil against Chelsea, really one of the more disappointing matches of the year, one of three nil-nils this uh, match day. Do you think either team should be happy with that? I, I guess in theory, Chelsea going on the road and getting a point out of Old Trafford was a good result, but they looked worse than Manchester United in that game. Yeah, that's a funny thing, isn't it? In previous years, if Mourinho had gone to United and gotten the nil-nil, people would have sort of said... What a great result for Chelsea mm. away at Old Trafford. But with both teams looking so susceptible, yeah. well, people seem unhappy with it. That's also in the context of a title race, too. This Right now, for Chelsea, it's just about improving, and they didn't really show any improvement on Monday. Well, I think partly it's baby steps. Because, I mean, if you look at the Chelsea lineup, then you see the shape of the midfield. 
is, or at least the personnel in that shape of the midfield are different. There seems to be more emphasis on the players who seem to be willing to play the way that Chelsea want them to play. They didn't really play with a recognised striker in that they played with Eden Hazard up front early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the only substitutions were two of them. And both of them were in midfield, not a striking position. Hmm. So does that allude to Chelsea's lack of options? Or does it mean that they're looking to play a certain way? Uh, I would I would say that with this, it shows the lack of options with Diego Costa. But, uh, you know, Hazard basically stood around with his hands on his hips the whole game. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another of the nil-nils. Let's go to Tuesdays at the King Power Stadium. Leicester with the chance to move into first place. Fell, up a, fell a little bit short, although... Most people seem to want to gauge this nil-nil against Manchester City in terms of their payroll against Manchester City's. Let's talk about the actual game because whereas Manchester United and Chelsea seem to be defined by a lack of execution for both teams, I I didn't see that with Leicester and Man City except for Jamie Vardy and Sergio Aguero missing some chances that could have given their teams three potentially three points. What I saw was two teams very wary of each other adapting their tactics to cancel out the other person's threats at the risk of their own success going forward. Yeah, but then even then you'd say that the, the way that, or at least the formations that both sides played, normally people say, well, he has such a natural touch or there's such a, a great way that, that, you know, these personnel play. And that I was sort of talking on another podcast about, um, uh, you know, it, it, it is, people say oh, it's such an, imp- an unpredictable season. Actually, kind of feels like a more predictable season because if you look at the way that people line up you can probably predict the results in most games yeah it seems like we've had more success doing that on the podcast this year as opposed to when you and i used to podcast three or four years ago Uh, so many times it seems like well this team likes to sit back wait to catch this team on the counter it was almost a surprise this weekend when uh, bournemouth and crystal palace (laughs) finished nil nil that our kind of pre-match predictions of oh palace is just going to catch them out and hit them on the counter a couple times didn't come true because so many matches seem to be uh playing to form yeah uh to some extent i, I mean that that's uh, is that where football's going is that where the premier league is going right now is it partly a transitional year for the premier league in the way that they're kind of transitioning away from some of the football last year where or year, even the season before where people really look to uh, play on the mistakes of other people in the league hmm. um and it seems less so it seems more about taking the initiative now hmm. um and so there's much more there's a much wider tactical uh, idea, I'd imagine, to a lot of managers' games. Hmm. Well, let's let's extend a metaphor or a narrative here that we keep harkening back on with Arsenal, who are now at the top of the league thanks to their goal difference edge on Leicester. If this season really is going to be defined by mistakes, or so many of these matchups that we highlight every week come down to the mistakes rather than the execution, it does seem like it, that's the kind of the opportune season for Arsenal to take advantage of things. I I think they, in a lot of respects, are a better team than last year. Their 2-0 win over Bournemouth, a nice bounce back after a disappointing performance this weekend against Southampton. Uh, you see the play of Metsud Olsel, somebody that is exploiting a lot of mistakes from different teams. It seems like that's kind of the narrative we've established around Arsenal. They're doing better this year because they're better at taking advantage of a, a league around them that is struggling to find their feet. To some extent, I also kind of feel like, um, you know, in, in order to score a goal, you are, I mean, essentially, you're waiting. You're always waiting for a mistake. So we've always people have mm. always been looking for a mistake because really you're just playing on someone's perception as to whether they're solid or not. And if you play on that for long enough, then in the end you'll sort of get through it. I guess is the idea in football. Um, 
I, I feel like Arsenal kind of play more to. I guess what we're seeing now is players that or teams that will play more to their own strengths, or it feels like the kind of pressing that we see now is more towards team, playing towards the team's strengths than playing towards the other team's weaknesses. Hmm. So, well, tell me if you agree with this statement. Is it that you know in England where the idea of the idea of the same kind of footballing philosophies that we've seen from teams in Spain and Germany and Italy seem to be less prevalent in England. Is it now the case that teams are starting to have defined styles of play and defined ways in which they differentiate each other from each other? I just wonder whether, uh, I know it's not a complex idea to explain, but basically I wonder each era defines itself by uh, different ideas which that you know is in the lexicon and all the different words that people use to surround football you know uh, a few years ago when Mourinho was entering the league it was it was a very different climate within football and you know people looking for one nils those kind of things and uh, looking for a different kind of mistake when the Premier League first started you know there was a different kind of man in the game um, and it was you know pretty much only men in the game at that time so people were looking for more physical players um, and now we're looking for more technical players. Different leagues are looking for different things. I just wonder whether we're, you know, while we're defined by the philosophy and, you know, the, basically what Barcelona set out and a lot of people almost mimicking that, um, whether we'll move a step ahead of that again, I think fairly soon, because I, I do think a lot of that, that idea is being played out. And I feel like a lot of managers are almost being misserved by the analysis that is given to them because, you know, people harp on about this analysis of philosophy or those kind of things. It basically gives people a structure or a stick to beat people with when it doesn't work. Hmm. And I think it takes away from some of the nuance that a lot of managers are working on. Like, um, say, uh, I, I, some managers who suffer in that are maybe Tony Pulis because they think he's one-dimensional or hmm. Mark Hughes because as the Ramble spoke about on their podcast earlier this week, the perception of him is the one that we still carry over very much from the Man City days when he looked outmoded in some of the ways that he was applying himself. And that's almost less applicable now, or maybe he's adapting his management style. And I think a lot of the time we, we want managers to remain inside their management box. So people sort of say, Steve McLaren, he's a crap manager. And then he wins and people go, well, you know, I mean, he, he's got it in him to, to win a couple of games. Hmm. And, you know, the, those things slowly change. Um, and I just, I just wonder whether our analysis, or in general, the analysis can sometimes be a bit too rigid. I suppose so. But the Mark Hughes and the Stoke thing still bothers me because this Good. week after after Stoke's comeback at Goodison Park, we have seen this pendulum that keeps swinging back and forth, and how people talk about Stoke now go back into the positive direction. And I even see some people on Twitter talking about how come Mark Hughes doesn't get more respect as it concerns jobs at bigger clubs, as if we didn't see him at QPR, as if we didn't see what he did at Manchester City, as if we can't look at the standings and see that Stoke has only scored 20 points in 19 games with a level of player that we were talking about as being a higher caliber player for the Potters than before. I'm not saying that Mark Mark Hughes should necessarily be doing more, but it's not like there's this awesome resume of results that Mark Hughes has, and it's not like there's this obvious change that he has uh brought to the Potters over the last couple of years. It's obvious compared to Tony Pulis, but this revolution that people keep wanting to see, this transformation, only recently with Boyan starting as a number nine, playing very much as a false nine lately, have we started to see it. I just think with Mark Hughes... To be fair, that was... was I mean... Last season, he did he did play as a much deeper player, and mm-hmm. Mark Hughes again exploited the spaces. So he has 
he has been adaptable, and so is Bojan. Yeah, so I, it's not. Well, I'm not saying that Mark Hughes is b- bad or especially good. I'm not saying that Bojan is a number ten, a, a better as a false nine, better wide. Whatever. I, what I'm saying is that we seem to be so eager to read into Stoke much more than we read into other teams. If we spent as much time talking about Kike Sanchez Flores as we did Mark Hughes, Sanchez Flores would be the next coming of Mourinho. At some point, we just have to say that Stoke, like most teams that are mid-table, are a mixed bag. And like most managers that consistently settle their teams at a mid-table, Mark Hughes is a mixed bag, which is probably the same way we would have described him 19 rounds ago. Yeah, good, good point. Um, and I, I guess to counter that, it's also that, you know, there's, uh, for, uh, you know, people talk about the um, cycles that football goes in. Definitely formationally, that's played out this season. You know, we're seeing the return of the 4 4 2. You know, uh, Squawker Dave from another podcast that I do was saying the other day how he thinks the team could probably win the league with a 4 1 4 1, which sounds like a fairly conservative formation, but might also serve some people within the league quite well. Because of you know the personnel that they have, and just to some extent, you could say that that's what uh, Manchester City play. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know if it's o- as overt as the David Moyes four one four one. And you know, the way that we lay those things out is, uh, you know, essentially it's down to the manager and, and the personnel. But you know, people almost wince when they hear four one four one because they think of a team that's just pr- been promoted or someone that's sort of tactically limited. But I think, again, it shows the productization of the Premier League to me to some extent and the expectation which come with, comes with that, which maybe David Connor has been speaking about for a lot longer than I have. Hmm. Uh, reading down some other scores from the last three days, Norwich got a 2-0 victory over Aston Villa. West Brom 1-0 victors over Newcastle United. Stoke City comes back for that 4-3 victory at Goodison Park. Crystal Palace and Swansea play to a 0-0 at Selhurst. Spurs, three wins in a row, 2-1 victory over Watford thanks to a very late Sun Hyun Min goal. West Ham United, 2-1 victory over Southampton. And then today, just before we started recording, Liverpool, one to nothing victory over Sunderland. Let's talk a little bit about Newcastle. Lawrence, this is another team that seems to perplex us on this show. Three matches ago, they look like they're ready to start climbing out of the bottom. Now, after their third loss in a row, they are two points adrift, stuck in 18th place. What's your current read on Steve McLaren's team? Uh, the Steve McLaren side has the ability to get out of this position. Um, and when you look front to back within this side then you can see there is quality within each area however they do sort of then they're currently lacking in the spine that a lot of other teams are talking about you know when you hear Arsenal fans talk about their team Liverpool fans talk about their team they talk about you know uh, key figures being injured um, and when you look I mean I'm, I'm looking at the front line for that uh, Newcastle side right now mm-hmm. <laughs> it just troubles me a little bit that their only options seem to be Perez and Mitrovic yeah. And then Wijnaldum seems to be the guy expected with goals behind that. Sissoko at one point would have been called on to give them goals as well. You know, you would have almost been looking at Colacini to score goals from the back. And none of those things seem to be happening. Um, yeah, it seems like the only player they can really count on for consistent re- performances is Wijnaldum. But then you have to worry about what his exact fit is. If Mitrovic happens to be playing or a healthy Cisse, if he's playing, if Perez is starting or if he's coming off the bench, it just seems like such a weird mishmash right now. Uh, yeah and it, it's also it also seems like um a formation which seems to be playing more to the personnel than the overall system and you say maybe that's a, a part of the compromise that steve mclaren's been forced to make at this point 
Mm. Well, after the 19th round of the season, we're at our midpoint, and Arsenal is at the top of the table with 39 points. They're mm. there with Leicester City, also on 39, but a plus 15 goal difference means the Gunners go into the, the second half of the season with the lead. Manchester City is three points back at the top, then Spurs in fourth place with 35 points. Palace, Manchester United, Liverpool, they occupy five through seven, but we've got a four-point gap there between fourth and fifth at this point. At the bottom of the table, Newcastle United, 17 points, back in the drop. Sunderland on 12, then Aston Villa, 8 points, looking destined for the championship. Let's go ahead and take our break right now. When we come back, we're going to answer some feedback that we got on Twitter. We're going to talk about player of the season. We're going to talk about some of the players of the year in Europe, and then we're going to look forward to this weekend's action in the Premier League. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the World Soccer Talk podcast. Richard Farley here with Lawrence McKenna. We actually really needed that break because we had no idea what we were going to do in the second half of the show. We had about 20 different ideas. Breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, we had about 20 different ideas, decided we didn't want to do any of them. So uh, we're here We're here broadcasting without a clear idea of what we want to do. We know we don't want to name our player of the round because both of us would give that to Metz at Oltzel. Uh We know we don't want to do our top fours because that feels like a weekend thing. Why don't we go to some feedback from Twitter first, and then uh, in the back of our minds, we can decide where we're going to go next. Okay. Uh, Benjamin P., a human Twitter user, uh, at a, a sensible mind, asks, who has been the best player in the 2015 calendar year? And then he says, from each of the top four leagues, if possible. So I think if we go through the top five leagues, we'll kind of uh, narrow the list down. F- for me, I guess we can talk about France first because it seems like Zlatan Ibrahimovic is still on another level there, Lawrence. Leads the league in goals right now, second in assists, very similar numbers to last year. Uh, as much talent as there is in that league, I don't think it's much of a discussion talking about who the best player in France has been. Yeah, not really. Although you say uh, this exercise, this exercise for me is always better when you don't actually shape it around naming the top five, but you just sort of use it as a framework for who was good this year. Yeah. So there's other good players within. I mean, you know, it's not just Latan. People have to get the ball to Latan. Uh, you know, they they made a pretty deep run into the Champions League and are probably looking to do the same again this year. But uh, I mean, part of that is tapered with you. You know, there are, there are other big teams competing on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that that's part of the maybe the bigger um, the bigger picture with this is that when you know you look at the treble that Messi got uh, uh, and PK those kind of players um, you know there's there's a lot more to that I'd say. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do like the idea of just kind of like going through these leagues and kind of mentioning which players jump out to us. For for me, part of the issue, and this comes to light when you're talking about the calendar year 2015 as opposed to half season award or anything like that. When I think about Italy, I think about Gonzalo Higuain has been so good for Napoli this year, but maybe wasn't as good in the last half of the 2014-2015 season. So then I think about one of those players, like you said, that excelled on all fronts, Paul Pogba, uh, as one of the leftovers for Juventus, and kind of wonder if he's made up the gap that Higuain has kind of created during the first half of this season. Yeah, um, I d- <laughs> I'm kind of wondering about uh, with also uh, this. Also, you also sort of think we have to pick a player per league, mm-hmm. and then you almost have to separate off the Champions League as well. That's true because the Champions League is almost becoming a whole other. Com- I mean, it is a whole other competition. But what I'm saying is, if you go with league and then Champions League, then you say, well, you know, as Lat- the only players that really deserve to win it are Barcelona players, then because they've competed on both fronts. But even then, that gets very interesting because in Spain. 
Messi seems to be the standout player in one regard, but when you think about how good Neymar has been during this season and the time that Messi missed, it comes back to that question about whether Neymar has done enough to catch up in the same way as has anybody else done enough to make up the gap between Iguain and whatever else they might have done last season. Probably not, although you'd also say um, that, that part of the problem for some of the players in Serie A is that they're competing on a bit of a, a uneven front. And again, for, you know, mm. same with players in Liga, etc. Yeah, so that they constantly go overlook. I mean, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. Someone sort of said, look how many times David De Gea has saved Manchester United in uh, 2015. You know, is he one of the best players in the Premier League? And I said, well, yeah, he's made some great saves. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, there, there are a number of players at the bottom of the league or a number, you know, a number of goalkeepers at the bottom of the league who are constantly making saves and we don't rave about them in the same way. That's so what true. we're doing is basically taking the status of Manchester United or taking the status of any of these players and basically extrapolating that onto their goalkeeper, onto their best looking player. And it's purely because they're more visible than everyone else that they seem to get um, more. Yep. No, I, I agree. Uh, we... we... We almost cop out when we're asked to separate individual con- contributions from the team because we think inherently that any individual that is good, it's going to translate onto the team's performance. So we look at the top players and top teams in the league and take the best players off of them. And, and that's our discussion. We don't tend to focus as much as the, on the players near the bottom. There is some logic in that, though. Um, it's probably a bigger discussion one for another time. Let's have another podcast after this one. And we can go through that philosophical <laughs> sure. thing. Uh, let's, let's go to Germany really quick. Uh, the players that stand out to me, uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, based on what he's done this year. Although, like Iguain, there's kind of this 2015-16 versus last year divide with him. Robert Lewandowski is part of that debate. Uh, to me, I always throw Marco Royce into these conversations because... As a player, I just love watching him so much. But the one player that seems to be kind of Mr. Consistency that bridges all these gaps is Thomas Mueller to me. Yeah, and also the unusual nature of Thomas Mueller as well. When you watch him uh, right. you know, playing, it, it sort of feels like he's defining his own position. And you know, I know it's become a cliche with him at this point, but there's a lot of other players. Yeah, you know, I, know, I know they're lighting it up and you, know, you can compare them, but it, it's difficult to name what position Mueller plays in. Hmm. Um, and then there's also players further back in the team. I and mean, we were talking about the adaptability of uh, Alaba this year, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how well he's done not only on the Bayern Munich front, but also on the Austria front as well. Yeah, uh, somebody that can play really uh, from attacking midfield back, like central midfield, defensive midfield along the back line. He can almost play anywhere except for goalkeeper. And he has that amazing strike to, um, to, to, to go on as well. And he's still pretty damn young too. Uh Right. England for me, it, it would seem like it's an interesting debate because Metsud Olsol, we don't associate him with greatness last year uh, in sp- in spring and winter of 2015. But the players that were great during that time, Aiden Hazard being the best example, have fallen off a cliff. And given how great Metsud Olsol has been this year, I don't really see this as much of a debate that Metsud Olsol's last half of 2015 carries him as the best Premier League player throughout the whole calendar year. No, but then he has had the most assists, I think within the league yeah. in 20, uh, 2015. So it swings and roundabouts for him, I guess, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. also, I, you know, I saw the intangible side of it the other day. I think it was uh, Michael Kenny again, who was saying, um, uh, you, you know, it, it's the, it's the beautiful side of him as well. It's not only the, you know, the tangible side, but the, the way that he plays it's so beautiful. 
I think also for as much as we criticize Arsene Wenger because of the role that he has seemingly had in not guiding Arsenal to titles over the last decade or so, I think we need to give Arsene Wenger a lot of credit for taking Metsuit also from this person who was wildly inconsistent throughout most of his career, a trait that had defined him as much as his unbelievable skill on the ball. And I like to believe that Arsene Wenger has had a big part in making Metsuit also into this much more consistent assist machine that we've seen throughout this season. Yeah, although you'd also say, uh, you know, uh, there, there was something uh, talking again the other day about how actually assists aren't a great metric to see whether you're a good player or not. It's chance creation, those kind of things. And actually, he's he performs pretty well on that as well. That's because true. your biggest problem with assists is, you know, if you're putting people into great positions, but you have a terrible striker ahead of you, then you don't get anything. Um, Th- and, you know, at times you'd say... Arsenal have had that problem. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so much like any singular stat, you probably shouldn't use it exclusively. Uh, I would say we kind of covered the five leagues. As far as just the best player throughout 2015, I'm still going to go uh, lean towards Messi, even with his injuries, Lawrence. It's certainly so. Uh, there's other players you can definitely give an honourable mention to within Europe. Uh, I, I definitely, I mean, obviously there's Ronaldo, people like that. Uh, I don't think Robbins had the most incredible uh, 2015, but mainly because he was... Uh, uh, basically, you, yeah, you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And then uh, Robert Lewandowski. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, Levin- that five minute whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention is on the site right now, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Uh, author and author we have Chris Moore has a slight variation on what we were talking about. He lists the top five players of the first half of the Premier League season. Probably no surprise at this point. Metsud Olsel is first on the list, followed by Riyad Mahrez. Romelu Lukaku, he has a three. Jamie Vardy, four. And then Odin Agalu, five. Even listing these names, Lawrence, I think it's pretty remarkable. Or it says something about the level to which Metsud Olsel is playing right now that it doesn't seem to be much of a debate at this point as to who should be number one on this list, even though for most of the year we were probably debating Vardy and for a little window there we had Mahrez there. After half of the season, I think there's developed somewhat of a consensus around who the best player in the Premier League so far has been. Uh, yeah. Are you detecting Again, a little we, bit more debate there? or? Well, no, actually. But part of it is uh, also that Mahrez needed someone to get on the end of those for his assists, etc. So, you know, it's, it's been a combo of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the system has really served the two of them. Uh, at times I was questioning whether it was the Vardy factor or whether it was actually the tactics. And to some extent, I think it was the tactics. Um, although, you know, every player has to play within that. So, uh, yeah, there, there are other great players within the league as well. I'm going to go for Ozil just because of uh, this great recent stint of form. Mm-hmm. We've got a match day coming up this weekend, starting on Saturday, the 20th round of the Premier League. The first match day of the 2016 part of the calendar. It starts with the early kickoff, a very good game at Upton Park, West Ham United hosting Liverpool. The main kickoff time on Saturday has Sunderland against Aston Villa, the bottom two teams in the league there. Leicester City hosting Bournemouth, Arsenal welcoming Newcastle to the Emirates. Southampton is visiting Norwich City, West Brom against Stoke City, Manchester United hosting Swansea City, and the last kickoff on Saturday, Manchester City visits Watford. Two games on Sunday feature Chelsea going against Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park, and then Everton hosting Tottenham Hotspur. Let's start with those two games on Sunday, Lawrence. Let's start with the last game of the weekend, Everton against Spurs. This on paper seems like a very even matchup, two teams that play very good soccer. Everton, though, having a little trouble closing out games, as Gareth Barry noted this week. 
his players, his teammates need to get better in that. And Tottenham Hotspur with three wins in a row after that upset loss against Newcastle, probably the form team in the league right now, and only four points off the top of the league. How serious are you considering Spurs as a title contender at this point? Uh, I'm considering them very seriously as top four contenders. As title contenders, I'd say they still sit behind uh, Arsenal and City. Mm-hmm. Ma- mainly just because, you know, these Spurs inconsistencies, although you'd say Arsenal have had the same in- and so have Man City. Uh, it's just that, that that tiny points gap between the two that maybe uh, I-, I think Spurs might struggle to make up. Those head-to-heads later in the season will probably decide that. Matching up the tactics in this one, you look at the, the pressing of Spurs, I wonder if Everton are going to be able to cope with that and whether that will throttle their game to some extent. Uh, Spurs seem to have a more solid back line. Um, than Everton do at this point. And uh, uh, for me, I'd say it's, it's going to be Spurs away. Mm. Um, although you'd hope that Lukaku can do something for Everton because I think a lot of Spurs fans would have liked to see him at the club. Yeah, I, I, I kind of see the matchup the same way. We talk a lot about how Everton performs better when they're allowed to play on the back foot. I don't, I'm not sure that's exactly going to play out like that in this one. Uh, but we do have a good defense versus attack matchup here. Tottenham, only 15 goals allowed through 19 rounds. The best defense in England. Everton's 35 goals, meaning they're the third best attack in the Premier League. Let's go to the other Sunday game, uh, Derby here. Crystal Palace won 2-1 to one earlier this year at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea going to Selhurst Park. A barometer as to how much they've improved over the last month or so. Crystal Palace, though, seems to be struggling a little bit of late. Uh, after two straight wins, they've now drawn two in a row, leaving some points on the table that they maybe should have claimed. Uh, particularly these last two matches, I think people would have pegged them to get full points. This is another one, Lawrence, that if you just go based on how the teams have played this year, particularly with Palace at home, they should probably claim three points, but that gets back to the whole Palace playing better away from Selhurst Park angle. Yeah, and also that Chelsea won't make, uh, again, sort of small adaptations in midfield. Uh, you know, the, the hitting factor is definitely there. It seems like Obama McKellar is going to get more games looking at the record of hitting with him. Um, and it probably looks like they're going to try and lock down a lot more, giving themselves a chance to, to win the games by a much more narrow margin. I wonder how the likes of Balassi and Zaha are going to do back there. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm just sort of wondering how well, again, these two match up. As much as we're talking about form with these two sides, again, let, let's maybe throw that out the window and go with how did Palace end up attacking Chelsea? Um, you know, I know we saw that Igalo and uh, Dini had a bit more joy against them, but again, that's a different strike force and a much more physical strike force and, and probably a much more co- better coordinated strike force. For that reason, I'm probably going to go with the Chelsea win here. I just wonder, given what we saw, the moments that we saw Anthony Martial uh, bring back early season Branislav Ivanovic, fast player matching up against Ivanovic, maybe taking advantage of some heavier feet at his point in his this career. That seems right up Crystal Palace's alley. They have a number of players that can kill you from the wide spaces. And it seems like Alan Pardew and his team are very good at getting those players, two of whom you mentioned, in isolated battles against weaknesses against the other team. I don't know if that's enough to decide this one, but I do like Palace's chances in this one. Uh, let's go to Saturday, the last kickoff there. Manchester City visiting Watford. Just a great matchup here. Uh, Watford, we know their quality. We've at this point, move beyond doubting them, even though in their last two games they've only claimed one point. Manchester City, they seem a little bit all over the place, from their performances at Arsenal to a convincing win after that to kind of a stalemate against Leicester City. And I'm just not sure at this point which Manchester City we're going to see game to game at this point. 
Yeah, um, and part of that relies on the midfield structure for Man City. Uh, I know we're talking about the quartet up front, which is uh, Aguero, Sterling, Silva, De Bruyne. But just behind that, I think, is what they build on. And, you know, if their fullbacks aren't pushing in the way that they want them to, then, you know, the structure of the whole side sort of falls down. Um, so looking at the way that Man City are probably going to match up against Watford, what I'm more worried about is actually how Man City are going to negate the idea that, you know, Watford's front two are going to completely outplay that back line. Hmm. Um, what Watford have been, I, I imagine, will struggle with the movement of uh, Aguero, if indeed Aguero will play in this game. Um so I, I think it makes for an interesting matchup again. You know, Watford have... Hmm, can Watford basically continue to rely on the outball? And if City find a way of shutting off, which a lot of other sides have struggled to do, do they have another plan? Hmm, it's very interesting. Lawrence, you went on the podcast on Sunday, so I, I want to pick up on a couple of things that we had left off from two weeks ago regarding Manchester City, or, or a week and a half ago, because you, me, and Nipun talked in the wake of Manchester City's loss at Arsenal. I bring this up because yesterday we found out that Vincent Company is going to be out four more weeks. And one of the things that we talked about there uh, with Company his potential absence, is whether Manchester City needs to go out and get another central defender. I take it that you think that they should probably stick with Otamendi and Mangala based a lot on the investment that they've put into those two players. Mm, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know many other centre-back options that would be immediately available for City out there, on the cheap at least. Um, I'm imagining that at some point we're going to have to see their academy come good, even though it's only just started. Uh, I'm I, to, to some extent, I was more making an argument that they should already have that backup. Uh, if th- that amount of money that they've spent and considering who they originally, which is Mangala and Otamendi and those other guys who they originally pitched as very expensive players who would be able to come in at the same level of company mm. should be able to come in and replace him. So it, my argument was less about whether they actually do have reinforcements and more about that they should have reinforcements for the investment that they've made. Hmm. Let me Let me throw a couple of names out here for you because we see a team like Chelsea where... A Gary Cahill caliber player, good player, not a consistent starter at this point on a team that is not going to really compete for very much, even though Nipun does think they can still get into the top four. Uh, Chelsea could start somebody like John Terry and, um, <laughs> but why is, why is the John Terry's other partner? His name is alluding to Zuma at there. Well, you could go Zuma or you could, yeah. Right. Yeah. What about go- going to Chelsea and saying, Here's eight million pounds. We would like Gary hit Kale. It's an interesting idea. Uh, hmm. May I? I mean, I'd be. I I just don't think it works because they're not going to do that, are they? I don't know if they are going to do it or not. Um, is Gary Cahill going to be a key part of the next really great title-challenging Chelsea team? I, I don't know. Um, do you maybe go to another side that perhaps has a spare uh, central defender and ask them? Uh, do you go out maybe ask for one of West Ham's uh, central defenders? Or do you maybe even say, hey, is Colaccini maybe available at Newcastle? I guess what I'm saying is, based on how poorly... Manchester City's, well, it's not even Manchester City's two central defenders. Based on how poorly Mangala is playing, I'm not sure that they need to go buy a 30 million pound player to improve there. I think they could buy somebody who has proven themselves decent in the Premier League and replace somebody who is decidedly not decent yet. 
Yeah, good point. Um, although, I, 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 there's a whole load of politics. You're basically going on uh, a very simple transfer there, which would, it almost is only really going to happen on Football Manager or something along those lines. You know, this is true. Like the idea of Colaccini leaving Newcastle, there's there's some complexities to that because he has been there quite some time at this point. Yeah, um, Gary Cahill leaving Chelsea on, at some level it makes sense. On another level, Chelsea might not see themselves as a team that wants to sell to Manchester City. They might see themselves as a title contender next year, despite where they are this year. So, um, yeah, you're, you're probably right, and I'm being a little bit too fanciful here. Lawrence, let's talk about a couple of other Saturday games before we sign off. Liverpool versus West Ham United. These are two teams right next to each other in the table after Liverpool's victory at uh, Sunderland. Liverpool is seventh. West Ham is in eighth. West Ham had drawn five straight games before their win this week. And Liverpool winning a number of games by thin margins. Uh, I, I guess I don't know how to see this one, Lawrence, but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends one-one. Interesting. What makes you? Who would score the goals for you? Well, Benteke scored in his last two games and yeah. remarkably missed <laughs> chances at the end of both of them. Payet and- could be on his way back for West Ham in this one, and people are sort of speaking as if Payet's like some sort of on-off switch for West Ham. Yeah, I. It seems unlikely to me that he would come straight off from an ankle injury into the team and yeah. make a big impact, but maybe he could. Maybe he's just that special of a player. I think the other thing that I'm worrying about is how bad uh, Mamadou Sako's injury is. We saw him really wrench a knee at the end of the game against Sunderland where Jermaine Lenz with a, a really kind of ridiculously eager challenge uh, there. That's one position where Liverpool just can't afford to lose any more players at this point. Yes, yeah, certainly so. Joe Gomez is out. Martin Skirtle is out. Um, you know, th- there's not many more people that can go back there. I mean, Emre Chan. people speak about Emre Chan as if he's some sort of uh, centre-back replacement. I know he played for a short time there in the Bundesliga, but also that people seem to think that because he plays part of back three, therefore he's fit to play as part of back two. Lucas Leiva definitely isn't fit to do that. James Milner probably looks like the best uh, person to do that. Considering if he comes his back. Spatial awareness. But even then, he didn't have the height or... You know the long-term experience. Uh, you you need a Saka or a Lovren in there, um, and actually, I kind of like them as a combination and a two. And we're even missing out the likes of Torre. Uh, mm. You know, Carlos Ebi's <laughs> only played, I think, maybe five minutes in the Premier League so far this season. So I don't know if that's match sharpness a hundred. Um, mm. However, what I do like, you know, is uh, Liverpool's pressing game. Uh, I also like the fact that they they when they play away from home, then things seem a lot more positive for Klopp. Um, and especially his team. Um, and I just wonder if the way that Liverpool would press uh, West Ham in the right areas would, would you basically Liverpool get exactly what they want out of West Ham. And, um, ju- and, and, and just like know. the Chelsea Crystal Palace game, this is a good chance for Liverpool to look at a disappointing result early in the season, go on the road, maybe reverse that, show that they have made some progress. The one game, and you and I didn't really talk about this off air, that I found interesting in reading down the list is West Brom versus Stoke City, just based on the Tony Pulis factor, based on the talk that we were talking about around Mark Hughes. It seems like a good chance for both um, managers to show themselves as coming good against a measuring stick. Yeah. Um, when you say measuring stick, who's measuring stick? I think Tony Pulis, the measuring stick, is his former club that is always going to uh, be judged against him because they moved away from him for stylistic reasons. Or maybe that's too simplistic. The, the style wasn't progressing probably from their mind. And then the same for Mark Hughes. He has to show that his different approach means 
makes for a markedly better product than than uh, Tony Pulis. Right now, these two teams are six points apart in the table. I think we all think that Stoke City is the better side here. But if they were to go to West Brom and kind of fall victim to a very cynical defeat, I, they would only be three points apart. And you could look at those teams and say, well, has Stoke City really progressed? Has Is uh, West Brom really so bad that Stoke City should have moved on from this man who who makes pretty consistent? Who makes pretty consistent pro- a pretty consistent product? I personally maybe though are you falling into that trap of sort of saying um, you know prettier football equals better football? Well, we we talked about this before. I I think that there is a difference between uh, pretty football and and better football. Definitely, I think that Swansea City fans know the difference at this point between those two, and I think at the same time. Not to not to evoke the spirit of Kartik here. I think aesthetically, Sam Allardyce's teams have kind of earned their reputation, but they have also produced better results and deserved results. Here, I just think Tony Pulis is just in a place where, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, there's no place for his teams to go with such an incredibly cynical approach. Yeah, mm, yeah. Are we cynical, or has he been given a remit? Mm. Um, is he working on, you know, whatever it is that this Tony Pulis side can end up doing? And I think there's a lot of nuance there that most people remove with Pulis. Um, I, you know, I still think that he does a great job in the, to be one of the 20 managers managing within the Premier League is a hard enough job. And what he has to cope with, uh, you know, West Brom, that probably a a number of players who see it as a stepping stone club, not least Sider Berahino up front, um, how well (laughs) he's dealt with those sorts of things. Um, and you know, a lot of people do sort of say, well, you know, the chains are on or the shackles are on when they play under, uh, Pulis. But I also think some players seem to like that regimenting and it seems to give them a, f- a form and something t- to fit to. So, true. Uh, you know, again, I do think that's partly down to the doctrine that we hear from Barcelona where it's sort of like, well, you know, if we're not all playing freely, then we're not happy. Um, I think there's more to it. And I think Tony Pulis, uh, is, is, you know, partly responsible for, showing the Premier League that there's more to life than uh, the beautiful football. Yeah, I think you could probably look at how Alan Pardew has set up his teams or even how Watford is playing now. And it's not beautiful, progressive soccer, but it's also not ugly soccer. And it's clearly soccer that is successful, at least this year. Well, everybody, we're going to be back on Sunday. Myself, Lawrence McKenna, and the returning Kartik Krishnayer to talk about the 20th round in the Premier League. But until then, for myself, Richard Farley... Lawrence? Hmm. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7 Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.